let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the people that you brought to the conference yesterday and pray for them that they would be equipped now to help people in their own churches steer clear of some of these things that are coming into the church in this day and age. Lord, we also, as always, pray for the dear scattered flock that listens to this on the Internet and maybe meeting in homes, meeting with a few families, or just maybe some are just alone at their home, not knowing where to find fellowship. We pray for them that you would make them feel that they're loved and prayed for and they're a part of what's happening in the fellowship of the saints. Equip them also, Lord. And we pray that you give us wisdom and understanding as we search the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Keith wants to give a little report about his, if you remember, he had drawn up a document uh, that disputes the claims of a certain Christian mystic. And some of, uh, some of our members went to the conference to hear what was being taught. And the report back was that it was even worse than they could have possibly imagined. So, Keith, you want to give a report? So, um, so we were supposed to have a meeting on... Uh this last Wednesday, and what actually happened was when I got home from church, the director of this conference called me and said that you want to have a confidential email between us. I said, well, you know, why do we need something confidential? Because Verkler taught in public, and my response is public. Why is there a need? And I said, I don't, I'm not interested in, in secret emails. And uh, what happened then was he said, well, I think that I'll hazard a guess that the reason you're doing this is because you're wounded. And the reason, yeah, so he, the meeting that he wanted was a confidential meeting, a secret meeting, so that he could see what my motives are and see what I was wounded and give me freedom and healing. And uh, I said, no, that's not what we discussed. What we discussed was a meeting where others could choose between our two positions. And he says, well, I'm not going to do that. So the meeting never happened between us because he said, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and we're not going to change each other. So I said, well, that wasn't the goal of the meeting. The goal of the meeting was to have somebody else decide between our two beliefs Hmm. and what was scriptural. Uh, So the bottom line is that's not happening, but I'm very, very encouraged with what's going on right now because that's set in motion a bunch of processes. I think will take several weeks or a few months to work themselves out, but people are looking towards accountability and think it will be a very good ending. So I'll give, keep you updated, but it'll probably be weeks now or months instead of days. Okay. Thank you. Anyhow, there are people that are teaching some very, very extreme uh, ideas, not, not dissimilar to what I was talking about in session two yesterday, and are actually some of the people that came were talking to me at lunchtime, and there was a fellow who talked to me. He said that he was at, in Bible college in 1996, and they actually brought a hypnotist in that was, that was putting students into altered states of consciousness right in class. And this was in the, the Bible college I graduated from. So that would have been un. It just never would have happened back in the early 70s. Not with the guys that were teaching us. They were quite conservative. 
Well, so that's a little feedback from that. Let's go to our passage, which is 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. It says, In working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, first of all, let's look at the Greek. Him is not in the Greek, so it just has the word working together. So you have to decide working together with whom. Obviously, it either means working together with Paul's co-workers or working together with God. The context, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, would make us think it's probably God that he's working together with. Because he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So since he said God is making an appeal through us, and then a couple of verses later, two verses later, he says working together, probably the, the New American Standard, which supplied with him, has the correct interpretation. Interestingly, the Greek word for working together is the basis of a word that's commonly used now in English. The Greek word is synergeo, and it's where we get our word synergy. Okay? That's we commonly hear that now, synergy. That's where that came from, working together. So, in working together with him, we urge, that's a, a word that was also used in verse 20, and it means to, to appeal strongly, uh, just like it was in verse 20, where they, they were urged to be reconciled to God. Now he urges that they not receive the grace of God in vain. The word receive is one we've seen a lot in Luke-Acts. Dekomai means to welcome, <laughs> to receive warmly. And... Um, the, the grace of God is not to be received in vain. Now, that's worth some discussion. What would it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? In some ways, it's almost an oxymoron because the grace of God is what changes us. The grace of God is what saves us. The grace of God is what sanctifies us. So what possibly could it mean to receive grace but to do so in vain? Well, in this case, I don't think that's it, Troy, because he's applying it to the church. And the thing, the strange thing about studying First and Second Corinthians is, as bad as this church is, Paul assumes they're Christian. He doesn't. He's not like the Galatians, where he anathematizes them for following a different gospel, because they had received the gospel that Paul preached, but then they were being troubled by the super apostles. And people that loved worldly wisdom. So what are some of the issues in Corinth? In, in 1 Corinthians, there was this love of uh, this Sophia, wisdom. And Sophia, in fact, I'm going to talk about this in my sermon. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, talks about Sophia of Logos, or Lagos. Sophia of Lagos, and it means uh, wisdom of words. Wisdom of word. And what that meant in the Greek world was probably an affection for sophistry and rhetoric. Okay? And that they, they would want something that was an appealing message that was taught with 
very sophisticated rhetoric, and Paul's message of the cross just didn't do it. Okay, The idea that God was going to save Jew and Gentile through a Jewish Messiah who was cursed because he hung on a tree just wasn't Sophia of Logos as far as the Greek, uh, the Corinthians were concerned. And then they had other problems. They had the problem of going to the pagan idol temples and sharing meals with them. Remember I talked about that last week? If you, have the, if you, if you share the Lord's Supper, you have fellowship, koinonia, with the Lord. And he says if you, if you take and have koinonia with the Lord through the Lord's Supper, and then you go down with your old buddies to the pagan idol temple and share a pagan idolatrous meal at the temple, you are fellowshipping with demons. And if you fellowship with demons, it's just a horrible incongruity to fellowship with demons when you're supposed to be fellowshipping with the Lord. So if you think of some of the issues, receive the grace of God in vain, what would that mean? Coralie. To be uh, hearers of the word and not doers of the word. That's a good point. That's what James says. You can be a hearer of the word and not a doer of it. Keith? That the grace of God wasn't having its outworking and sanctifying you? Yeah, you know, let's. Um, there's a cross reference from Corinthians. I think they'll give us a hint. Robert, if you would look up 1 Corinthians 15:10. I think that that gives us a real good uh, idea of probably what Paul has in mind because he gives himself as an example of what it should be like. All right? 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Yeah, and I love that passage. Now, notice, now he's also using the term vain, in the term grace in the same verse, right? So he says, God's grace toward me, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace did not prove vain. I labored harder than the rest, but not me, the grace. So he, he doesn't want to take credit, but he does want to make a point. That he didn't just assume that because he had received grace, he did not need to take action to fulfill God's purpose and calling as, as, as an apostle. But then when he gets done saying, I work harder than the rest, then he goes back and says, but grace. All right. So I think that grace, the opposite, whatever Paul said about himself, the opposite is what he's worried about here. Okay, and the opposite is they say grace, grace, and take absolutely no action. And then, so what good is grace that did nothing in our lives? Sam, you had something to say? When he talks about to receive the grace of God in vain, um, he's also talking to them about warning them about living, living for oneself. Because up in 515, he says, and he died for all so they would, might live no longer, live for themselves. That's a very good point, Sam. That's an astute reading. <laughs> That's the highest compliment you get in Bible class. <laughs> Astute reading, because see, when, when something is a little perplexing, you always look at the context. And there's some context that comes after this, I think, that might be interesting too, because Paul has to defend himself 
But eventually he goes on to verse, see in verses 3 through 13, Paul is defending his own apostolic ministry. And he, he hates to have to do this, but he does it because he, his ministry is so tied to the gospel, it's so much integral, Paul and Paul's gospel are so much together that he's afraid if they reject him as a person, they're also going to reject his gospel. So he has to defend himself. Yes. Is he implying that these people are going, um, both the sophistry and rhetoric, and then also the temples, etc., that that's kind of a legalism that they're hanging on to? Well, no, it's actually the opposite. It's more of a libertarianism. Um, they're taking liberties that, that, that Paul doesn't think they have. Let's go forward a little. We'll see that, okay? Let's go forward to 614, because we have a little interlude now coming up where Paul defends his own ministry. He tells his story of all the things he went through, the endurance and tumults and sleeplessness and evil report and regarded as deceivers and all of these things. He has kind of a, a flair here to uh, using opposites, known yet unknown, and, and so on. And, but then when he gets back to talking to the Corinthians about their own situation in verse 14, I think we get an idea about what he's driving at in this receiving the grace in vain. Verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, they shall be my people Come out of their midst and be separate, and do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you. So the, the point that he's going forward to is to rebuke them for thinking they had the liberty to be bound together with the idol worshipers at the temple, the idol temple. They were actually partaking with, of meals with their old pagan friends. And, as I preached last week, there's an implication in 1 Corinthians 10 with the wording in the Greek that this play had sexual connotations, and that was, which is what wasn't unknown in, in uh, the Greek pantheon of gods and worshiping that they had immorality involved in their worship service. So you can see that this is clearly outside of any legitimate Christian liberty to go do this. Okay. I was just wondering if there's a parallel between the third commandment and uh, what Paul says here, where the third commandment says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And uh, the idea that I think we as Christians have so often is that that's merely the cussing or the using his word, um, his name inappropriately. And it may well be that, but it may go beyond that in the sense that taking the Lord's name in vain meant living in such a way where they took the name of Yahweh and it was of no avail in their life. They were no different than the surrounding culture. In the context you just pointed out, Bob, um, here it says, do not receive the grace of God in vain um, to live in such a way that you're no different than the surrounding culture. Again, you're no different than the pagans that are sacrificing uh, to the idols. Another astute That's what I was going for. (laughs) He was going for that one. That's our our version of the gold star. Very good. I I told Eric that's very right on. The Old Testament, when it talks about 
profaning God's name when, when the Lord himself through his prophets complained to Israel that they had profaned his name, he was, it was almost always in the context that they were partaking in, in idolatry. In other words, their name, they bear God's name by being Israel's, by being his people. And when they go and partake with the pagans in their idolatrous practices, they profane the name. And, and it wasn't just what they say. And so in a lot of ways, they, they misinterpreted a passage. They tried to not profane the name by not pronouncing it, right? But there's an irony to, to that because pronouncing the name wasn't what profaned it. It was bearing the name and living like the devil is what profaned it, not just saying it. All right, yes. So you're saying that uh, in verse 1 then, vain, uh, to receive God's grace in vain, this was happening to saved Christians. Or was yeah, a warning it, against it happening? Yeah, it's a warning. Person. It's a warning against apostasy, in my opinion. Okay. Because had they, if they would continue in this practice of partaking in pagan idolatry, all the while naming the name of the Lord, they're receiving the grace of God in vain. But they're saved. Well, Paul seems to assume that in Corinth, which is, is almost assuming shocking. It, assuming it rhetorically, maybe? I, 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 I don't know. Maybe Keith can answer that. As I've studied First and Second Corinthians, one of the big mysteries to me is why Paul still assumes they're Christian. Maybe Ryan's got an answer. I was just going to say that turning from you know, vain idols to God, that's another concept, and the idols are typically put in place that they are vain all throughout the Old Testament, those uh-huh. vain idols. And inasmuch as the children of Israel, when they came into the land, struggled continually with idolatry in the temple and idolatry in the temple. And the whole history of the kings is going back between choose idols or choose a temple. When Elijah had the big battle with Baal, choose God or choose the idols yes. and, and choose Baal. In essence, that same concept is coming up here in a Christian community where you have the idols and God's own grace that are juxtaposed, and you can either serve the idols, just like Israel did, or serve the grace of God and have that expressed in you. Exactly. Now, think about whether the... Obviously, we have the idea of the visible church or the invisible church, and doubtless there were people in the visible church in Corinth who really weren't Christians. All right, But Paul, maybe to shame them or to call them to the gospel... Starts from the presumption that they're Christians, which you can do. I, I do that when I'm uh, like in the seminar yesterday, right? I'm not presuming that everybody I'm citing actually is not a Christian. I'm not presuming that, but I'm trying to call people into account. In other words, if you are a Christian, why are you going into alpha level to try to get revelations, or why are you going into mysticism? In fact, I, I, I spoke to somebody about this not too long ago. If you are a Christian and you're truly converted, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if that's the truth, then you don't need this other stuff. What the mysticism is, is a spiritual experience for liberals. Literally, I believe that's what it is. Because the the liberalism that I knew as a teenager had no spiritual experience at all. There wasn't any. We went to church... And we went through the motions of saying what they told us to say, and or read your responsive reading, say the thing, and, the, and then the, we'd have the Apostles' Creed, which the truth was in that, but 
I didn't understand or believe it at the time. And then the pastor would speak from the Reader's Digest or U.S. News and World Report, and he would be telling us, if I can just summarize everything I heard in about 15 years of listening to sermons. Go out and be a good person. There's no, nothing spiritually invigorating about that. So now liberalism has found an angle to keep people coming back by giving them a real experience. And what it is is mysticism. And because you can go into these altered states or you can use this contemplative prayer or whatever you want to do, and you do have a real experience, spiritual experience, and most of the time a very positive one because Satan's always going to start people out with, with a hook. He's not going to give them some nasty experience the first time coming out of the door. Maybe later when they're totally in bondage, he will. So I tell people, if you are truly a Christian, you don't need this because you have the real thing. And the real thing being you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you, who, who carries you, who, who intercedes in groanings and is in a real alive relationship with God. What do you need this for? And if you do go do this, you're insulting the Holy Spirit. Okay? You're, you're, you're uh, in danger of receiving the grace of God in vain. Yes. I would say the difference that I would say, I think that the Corinthians are Christians, gets down to that because the Galatians, the gospel wasn't being preached anymore so that the word that carries the grace of God was absent and therefore, the grace of God itself was disappearing. Where in Corinth, apparently the gospel was continued to be preached in addition to other things. Yeah. There's other things that came with it. And Paul was fighting the other things. But the presence of the gospel there also said that there was people that were feeding on the gospel. And there was a church that, had, that was grouped around the gospel. So Paul was attacking the other yeah. things that were in addition to it. For, yeah, uh, Ryan. Um, See, I think the re- here's my take on it, because I've spent a lot of time, I keep going back and studying 1 Corinthians because I like Gordon Fee's commentary too, so much. Anytime I get an excuse to read it, I do. I just did this last week. I read his commentary in 1 Corinthians 1. But I, th- I think now, if you look at it, the reason Paul assumes that was because he was the one who went there and preached the gospel, and, who, and, and when the foundation was, remember he said that, the foundation, First Corinthians 3, was Christ. All right, and so he personally preached the gospel, so they know he knew they received the right gospel, and he know he knew that many of them responded in an appropriate way. So that's probably why he assumes there's Christians there. Yeah, and I, I'm building right on that, Bob. In First uh, Corinthians 15, um, we get the word vain again, but it's in in response to the gospel here. First Corinthians uh, 15, 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Wow. So I think that verse kind of encapsulates Paul's view here, that the, uh, he assumes that the church at large received the gospel. But he holds the possibility that they believed in vain, in the sense of either not believing the the content of the gospel, which Paul goes on to speak of the uh, resurrection. Yes, because some of them were denying resurrection. Yep. Or um, or receiving the grace in in the sense that it, it didn't find its root. Just superficially, yep. like your article about John. Yeah, Ryan has a good article about the Gospel of John about how the term "believe" is used two ways in John: one for a superficial belief that doesn't last. 
And it's like the sower and the seeds would be another one. Okay, remember when I was preaching through Luke and we did the Greek prepositions around, let's see if I remember them, around, on, beside, and into. And into was the only one that was really saving. Okay, so all the rest of those at the beginning look like Christians. All right, but they, the fact that they do, if they do go back to the pagan temple and Paul tells them they're not allowed to do that, it's sin and it's illegal, and if they keep doing it, then you quit assuming they're Christians. Would, would that be the correct way to look at it? Okay. I grew up in a Christian home, and, um, and you've all heard the, the joke, you know, if you are born in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. And... Um, <laughs> I guess in reading this one verse about uh, the grace of God in vain, uh, Galatians 2.21, I just discovered not too long ago, and it's, uh, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. And I think a lot of people who are born in a Christian home who maybe, uh, well, I used to say, well, I, th- I think I accepted Jesus when I was around three years old. Um, but I didn't understand it. I, I yeah. accepted him into my heart. Yeah. But it wasn't until later in my life, actually within the last couple of years, um, you know, I go figure, but I think I was born again, even oh. though I went to Bible college a couple of times. Yeah. But for, I've been depressed all my life and seeking after many of the things that we're talking about. Maybe it's a little bit like Balaam and his donkey. You know, he was after... Uh, uh, you know that story, yeah. and um, and for the first time in my life in the last couple of years, I have a joy that has been coming up from the inside instead of me working on the outside. Wow! So, God so, bless you, Gary. Thank you. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, "I do not set aside the grace." And I think a lot of Christians who are grown, or, or they grow up in a Christian home, they. Um, they, in a sense, set aside the grace. They don't need it, or they don't see their, see their need for it. And we just, that's what we need. Thank you, Gary. That's a very touching testimony. I went to Bible college with Gary back in the early 70s. And, you know, it's hard. People that grow up in Christian homes are often so Christianized by the environment that it's hard for them to know if they're truly converted or not. Because it's the basic Christian ethic can be accepted you know and i'm gonna <laughs> that, that also dovetails into what i'm going to preach on uh this morning that's also why we need to preach the gospel to the church we need to continually preach the gospel to the church and uh, one of the passages i'm going to cite in fact <laughs> one of my passages is galatians 2 20 and 21 and another one is 1 Corinthians 15. So you're all stealing my thunder here, Brian. It works both ways. <laughs> but 1 Corinthians 15, Paul preached the gospel to the church. And then I'm going to cite this guy. He says that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Remember the grace of God and how glorious it is. So... A lot, of, a lot of good thoughts. I like the one about taking the Lord's name in vain because uh, I, I had another thought, Eric, about that. There's a passage in the New Testament. I should know exactly where it is. 
Timothy somewhere. He says, let him who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Somebody know where that is? Whoever finds it first gets, I don't know what. Yeah, yeah, I don't have any stars. You get a free cup of coffee during fellowship time. <laughs> I, I'm thinking Timothy, but but it's, what's that? Ryan found it. He's not eligible. He's a, he's a preacher. You don't count. You're a preacher. What's it say? <laughs> Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That's really on track with what we're talking about. That was in 2 Timothy? Okay. Now, think Second about Timothy. that verse in the context of what we're talking about. The firm foundation of the Lord stands. The Lord knows those who are his. So that's the invisible church, right? So the invisible church are those who actually are the Lord's, and the Lord knows. We can't see the invisible church. We see it because it's in our midst, but we can't see the spirit world, so we can't see regeneration of the heart just visibly other than fruit. But sometimes there are people who live outwardly like Christians who may not actually be converted. So the so Lord knows those who are his, and that's the invisible church. But we can see the visible church. So in the visible church, uh, Paul is saying, let him who names the name of the Lord. Okay, so there may be people in the visible church who are naming God's name. That's good. But you've got to depart from iniquity. And remember, uh, uh, Keith, you listened to that Gerstner series? I remember uh, what he said. That he was addressing to Christians who grew up in the church. And in his world, I believe Gerstner was Presbyterian, probably. All right. In his world, they, everybody, they had such a strong church ethic. You have to go to church. You don't leave. You don't depart from your faith. And, and so people in the Presbyterian and Reformed, particularly Dutch Reformers like this, their kids all are very well trained and they stay in the church for the most part. At least they used to. And Gerstner was old school. And so then the issue came up, and people would ask Gerstner, who is a brilliant theologian, well, maybe I'm not one of the elect. I'm having doubts. I'm having doubts if I'm truly regenerated, and things like that. And Gerstner's answer was to sit under the teaching of the Word of God, and if you're willing to sit under the gospel and listen to the gospel and live a scandal-free life, in other words, if you name the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity, this is the best thing you can possibly do. And whether you're elect or not, you're still better off. <laughs> You'll even be better off in eternity because there's a degrees of reward and punishment. That was Gerstner's answer, but uh, it's very similar to what uh, Keith was quoting. That's why the word is continually telling us to be holy, to, and that word means separate, to be distinct from the world's way. Exactly. And that's how we'll know that we are, that people are really in the Lord's family by their distinction. The, it's a, it's a, the change that, that starts on the inside and it goes all the way through. Coralie, and then... Um, I, I just have to make a comment. I just can't believe how this lesson squares with my personal... Uh, circumstances. Um, 
I'm facing going to a wedding of my niece. Now, my sister's children have all been raised in a Christian home, wonderful Christian family, evangelical, evangelical free. And this particular niece in her wedding and her fiancé are having a dance. And I know, I hope I don't step on toes here, but this is my own personal conviction. What I'm, I've decided to boycott, go to the ceremony, but boycott the reception because they're serving um, mixed drinks. I don't know how they phrased it, cocktails. They're serving cocktails, champagne, and having a dance. And, and I know I'm going to offend people. I know if there are people who, anyone I've talked to disagrees with me, but I'll tell you the Lord has spoken to me through all you people and, and the message this morning that he prepared for us because this is another one of many affirming messages I have received. I'm going to face contradiction not only among my friends in doing this, but among the family. It's, I covet your prayers if you feel inclined to pray for me. It's on the 23rd, a couple of weeks from now on Saturday night and down in Des Moines. And I stand alone. And our, our song that we sing in, in Sunday school is Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And when I was playing that song up front, I realized that it was just the week I had taken a stand. And, you know, it's, it may seem like a small thing, but I hope it will send a message to all these young people. There's a pervasive acceptance of drinking, even among young people I've spoken to in our community. And um, it just doesn't square with being a Christian. Uh, okay. You know, that's what I think. All right. And I hope it sends a message for them to reconsider. They go to all the movies. You know, they're indoctrinated into the world. They accept the world cannot distinguish between how they live their lives and um, how are they going to know that we hold a different message. Okay. You know? so. I, I think that's more of a first, in my opinion, it's more of a Romans 14 issue, but it's still okay for you. You know, I was just going to say that the, the reason that people know that we're Christians isn't that I don't drink or do drink. I went to a school where it was illegal. You couldn't have, uh, you didn't get fed unless you had a tie on. And anybody that had uh, facial hair that went below the corners of their mouth had to get it cut off because they had defined, they defined what, what Christians looked like in their own little set of rules. And, uh, that isn't what Christianity is about. You can have John the Baptist with a camel hair thing strapped around him with a rope, eating locusts and, and honey, or you can have Jesus come and uh, be a friend of sinners and go to the enemy's, temp- the enemy's uh, meals. And what was core wasn't the, whether they ate or drank or what they ate or drank. What was core was really what they preached and what they lived. Right, but I would say, in, in defense of Cora Lee, remember we did Romans 14 on the radio? That not, not every Christian has the same feelings about scruples, mm-hmm. and we're to accept everybody the way it is. Specifics. I'm looking at a trend, a pervasive trend to be like the world and, not be, and, and a deception and not no discernment. And it goes further than just individual. Okay, all right. Well, that's true, and that's why we had that conference yesterday, because all of that stuff we're talking about, that's what the world's doing. So the world's going into an alpha state, then we've got to have it. Whatever, we have to have a Christian version of everything the world's doing. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. that we, that's, not, that's not, in the long run, if we have to just try to be like the world, that's, that's not right. However, I can relate to Keith, too, because when I went, I almost got kicked out of Bible college before I got through the door. <laughs> I went into North Central Bible College, and I had Elvis mutton-chopped sideburns. All right? 
<laughs> and and I was and they had this rule book they handed me that I had to sign, and it was it was stricter than any rules I'd been under since I was even in junior high. Um, I mean, you 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 could not be out past eleven o'clock. You could not have any facial like you said. They had rules out on your hair. They had rules on everything. You couldn't go to any movie theater to see any movie, no matter what it was. Anyhow, so I, maybe you heard his story, but I, I was going to protest and not sign the book. Because I, I, I looked at the book and, and I said, this is Mickey Mouse. I just came from Iowa State University and now I'm going back to kindergarten. This is ridiculous. So I was going to not sign the book. I was going to go, dis- I almost got kicked out. But this guy intercepted me in the hall on the way to rebuke the dean. And, and this was providential. The Lord had a guy standing in the hall that had seen me right after I was converted. And he took me down into the prayer room because I told him what I was going to do. He said, let's go down to the prayer room. You know, I know some of you heard his story, but we get down to the prayer room and he said, did anybody ever, did you get baptized? I said, yeah, I, just, I got baptized just a couple months ago. And he goes, well, you missed something. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, didn't they tell you that you're dead? I mean, the point of being baptized is you're burying the old man, so you're dead. I said, no, I never knew that. So he took me to Colossians 3 and verse 1. It says, you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. He said, and then he said, do you ever seen a dead man that cared how long his sideburns were? <laughs> you know, I said, no, I think once they're in the coffin, somebody else has to take care of their hair. <laughs> and he said, well, so then what's it to you? You came here to get an education? And he said, I had a hard time because this guy had been a hippie, so I know it was harder for him to cut his hair than me. He had more of it to cut off. And uh, I was a teenage Republican. <laughs> All right, so he, uh, he said, yeah, every, time, every new rule is another uh, uh, shovel of dirt on, on the old man who's dead in the grave. So I got all excited. I said, all right, I'm dead. I can sign the book. So I went, I went in, totally changed my opinion because the Lord didn't want me kicked out of Bible college. <laughs> And I sat down to the dean and I signed a book and I said, I'll follow any rule that you have here. And he just sat there and looked at me. I said, what's wrong? He pointed to my sideburns. They were like these big mutton shops. He said, what do you mean you're going to obey the rule? You're not even doing it right now. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I forgot. So I went home and shaved him off and came back and gave him the book. And I got into Bible college. And besides, those mutton shop sideburns were ugly anyhow. I just didn't know it. We're, uh, sorry about that. No, that's nothing. Elvis does a lot better than that. <laughs> Don't feel bad, Patrick. It looks good on you. <laughs> well, yeah, it came way yeah. down. Have you ever seen when Elvis was like that? Yeah. Well, Bob, they're coming back in, and I think it would be all right now. But, you know, what you just said. It was the word that changed you. It wasn't the guy intercepting you. It was the Holy Spirit that intercepted you. And what Coralie said, and what I have found through my journey backwards from all this stuff, you know, is that when the word isn't being preached, the Holy Spirit can't convict and sanctify people. Uh And that's what's wrong with these kids who, who are living like the world because the word is not being preached in the church. Yeah. I totally agree. The word is going to change us, not, not somebody's stricter rules. And, you know, I figured, well, you probably remember this, Diane. 
three years I went to Bible college because I had a year of credit that they gave me for Iowa State. We never went to a movie because I signed a thing saying I wouldn't go to a movie, so I didn't go to one. None. Got to the end of just before graduation, and people, some of my buddies and were talking and, and said, uh, what are you going to do when you graduate? I said, I'm going to take my wife to a movie. <laughs> and, and the guys were laughing. They said, well, you mean you've been following that role? Ha, <laughs> 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 Silly me. <laughs> and so even then we were a little sheepish. So the only movie we dared go to, remember what we went to? It was one where it shows penguins in, in um, it was just a documentary about penguins in Alaska. <laughs> Figured they can't be too sinful to watch the penguins in Alaska. <laughs> All right, that was our experience. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's look up our cross-references. <laughs> um, what? Well, what, then where were they? Antarctica. Well, see, I, mean, I wasn't paying attention. I felt so guilty being in a the movie theater. <laughs> he says there's no penguins in Alaska. I don't know where they were. <laughs> All right, so I was wrong. <laughs> but we did see a penguin movie, didn't we, Diane? Yeah. Okay, one, uh, Keith, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. You have, you have a... Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 for Dick, Joe, Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's a famous verse. That's one of our memory verses. See, so you should be able to just recite it. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to embarrass you. I don't know if I can. <laughs> um, uh, Alice, uh, Jeremiah 8, 8 and Troy. Um, Hebrews 12, 15 and Larry. Well, we already did this one, so I'll have to wait. We, 1 Corinthians 15, 10 we already did. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored harder than the rest, but not I, but the grace of God. So Paul starts with, he goes, grace, grace, I worked grace. He wanted to make sure the emphasis was correct, right? All right. Okay, so you had one memorized. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to prove I knew at least one verse in the Bible. <laughs> okay. 1 Corinthians 3.6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Yeah, now, I was alluding to that earlier, that that's one of the reasons Paul believed they were Christian in spite of all their problems, because he was the one who preached the gospel and seen them respond in faith to the gospel. So he assumes there's a church there somewhere. It's somewhere in Corinth within this church, there's a real church. Okay, um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that so you may be proved what is the will of God and that which is good and acceptable and perfect yeah and interesting we did radio on that too not too long ago a powerful passage that that after all of the teaching and justification you know the first 11 chapters of Romans then he goes all right don't be conformed, but be transformed. If you're, if you're still being conformed to the world, then this justification isn't doing what it does do when you sit under the means of grace. And then Jeremiah 8.8. 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? 
But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Wow. The, the scribes made the law of the Lord into a lie? Is that what it said? <clears throat> and, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The lying pen of the scribes. They've been taught wrong. That's, that's just so bottom line. After all of the stuff we talked about yesterday that's going on in the church, the bottom line is this. The elders of the local church are responsible that the church is taught the truth day in and day out. We're absolutely responsible for that. And we may not have, we don't have control over what everybody, how they all, people respond, but people when they come into the church should always be taught accurately the truth of the Word of God. And Jeremiah was lamenting because that wasn't happening in his day. And the whole nation was going astray. If the Word of God is not having its influence on us, what will happen? We'll go astray. <laughs> okay. It's God. It's God is keeping us. Okay, uh, Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Okay. He talks about coming short of the grace of God. That's, uh, actually, that's commentary on... Esau, because he despised his birthright. And that's how he came short of the grace of God. All right. Let's go to verse 2. We've got 10 minutes here. He's, for he says, now he's going to quote Isaiah 49a from the Septuagint. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now, Paul is taking a passage from Isaiah 49, which, by the way, Isaiah 49 is about the servant of Yahweh, which is messianic, this messianic session. And so, um, in fact, if you want to, if we turn, let me turn to Isaiah 49. Let's all turn together to it and see the context. I believe that Paul's application is that this day of messianic salvation has come upon us, starting at Pentecost. Is that how you understand it, Ryan? Yeah, now meaning the age of salvation. And that day of salvation, which is now, we don't know how long it goes. There's going to be an end to it when it's too late. But we're living now in the age in which Messianic salvation is available before the judgment comes. It says here in Isaiah 49... So I'm going to start with verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention to you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the day of my mother, from the, from the body of my mother. He named me. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword, and a shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow and has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I've toiled in vain. I spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now said the Lord, who formed me from the womb, to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I also make you a light to the nations. Now, 
maybe Ryan can help us here. He studied this quite extensively. But as I've studied Isaiah and the prophets, it goes in and out of, of present realities for Israel and Isaiah, and then back to the, yeah, you want to get the mic there, Ryan? Then back to the future. So sometimes it's confusing. All right. For example, in Second Second Samuel seven fourteen, it's talking at one and the same time about Messiah and Solomon, because part of the verse doesn't really apply to Messiah. Yeah, there's near far elements. Yeah, why don't you explain this. that, Ryan? So much in in prophetic literature, um, you have the the prophet taking a, a near instance and addressing it, but Oftentimes, it has far-reaching fulfillment. And uh, one in particular is this whole concept of the day of the Lord. Um, if you look in the minor prophets, uh, there's, there's this impending declaration of the day of the Lord, and often it had a near, near application. But there was so much language in, in the proclamation of the day of the Lord that has to do with the consummation of all things that it was far-reaching. And we know that for sure because... For instance, in Joel, uh, even though a lot of the stuff was near there, talking about the exile, um, the New Testament authors, say in Acts 2 and in Revelation chapter 6, find the application not only uh, hundreds of years later, for instance, in in Acts 2, but also thousands of years later at the end of the age, as we see in Revelation 6. Yeah, so it's both and. So I wanted to point it out because that's the way this is. Now, my New American Standard has capitalized me, you, servant, because it wants us to know it's messianic. But some of this applied exactly to Isaiah himself or to Israel as a nation. All right? And it's intermingled. And that's the way prophecy works. Now, the clearest proof of that is 2 Samuel 7, 14, 15, 16, because there David is getting this prophecy about a son, this word about a son, and David says explicitly that the Lord has spoke to him about then and the distant future. So even David knew that both things were going on at the same time. All right? Well, let's go on here. A couple more verses. Verse 7. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to the despised One, to the One abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. That's Messiah. Verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for the covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritage. And that's the passage Paul is citing part of from the Septuagint. So we have the near far and the one and the many and so on. So the day of salvation is the, the period, in my opinion, all right, begins with the day of Pentecost, that's how I see it, and it goes on until probably the end of the tribulation. Because there's still people that get saved during the tribulation, and Israel, it applies to Israel at the very end of the tribulation. But then God comes, and all of his enemies are wiped out, and there's no more opportunity for salvation. Robert. Um, My study notes... um talk about this passage that says when God offers deliverance, it is wise to respond immediately before the offer is withdrawn. Uh, the word now, in a broad sense, refers to the gospel age, while in a specific sense, it refers to the time when an individual hears 
God's offer of salvation. I, I agree with that. That's a very good point. In a broad sense, it's the Messianic age, but for the person applying it, it's, it's now. And so when Paul's applying it to the Corinthians, you better respond to God because you don't know how long you have. There's, there's two things we don't know. We don't know how long we're going to live, and we don't know when the Lord's going to return. Okay? So being those two things, my advice is to get saved now. <laughs> that's, that's the best policy. <laughs> that's straight out of the Bible, because I remember back in the early 70s, I was saved, and the, preach, the guy preaching was charismatic, but he had this verse, today is the day of salvation, and he said, you, you, you know, the verse from the Old Testament where you stand between two decisions, and I came under conviction, and I knew that was my day. And I wasn't going to take any chances playing around. So I, I submitted to the Lord that day. I didn't dare go home that night without doing that. That was in the yeah. old days when they used to preach. <laughs> the good old days. At the acceptable time, the word time is kairos in the Greek. It means a time in its qualitative sense, not its quantitative sense. So, in other words, the crucial moment is that we'd respond now. Okay, it puts an urgency to it. The eschatological day of grace. Well, I have some more citations, but we're not going to have time for those. So I'm just going to back up and start on this next time. Um, I have a sermon called Seven Benefits of Preaching the Gospel to the Church. And there was an article that I read, and, and I sent it to Ryan, and he approved of it as well. It's an article uh, in Modern Reformation by a guy named Jerry Bridges, who's telling how he previously misunderstood things. And now he's, got a, now, now he's telling how he understands it today. And it's called Gospel-Driven Sanctification. And, I'm gonna, and it's on our reference sec- section, reference section, TwinCityFellowship.com. Remember, uh, Scott put that on there. So now that if I have some article I think I really like, you can read it as well. And I don't have to make copies. (laughs) Just being lazy. All right. See you upstairs at 1030.